0: This is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News. Uh, these are your top headlines for Tuesday, July 19th, 2022. This is the second episode of the show. Um, I just want to thank everybody that listened uh, and gave me some positive feedback. I got a lot of, uh, you know, heard a lot of good stuff about the show. I'm happy that some people seem excited about it. And I just want to bring you guys uh, the top foreign policy news stories of the day from our anti-war non-interventionist perspective. So today was a pretty big day. Um, Not any major stories, really, but a lot of interesting stuff. Um, As always, we bring you a ton of content at antiwar.com, as you can see on the page here, if you are watching on video. Oh, and I'll just mention, um, we're on Odyssey now, if you want to watch on video there and YouTube and most of the major podcast apps, please let me know. Get in touch if I missed your uh, favorite way to listen to a podcast. If there's another more platforms I should get on, uh, but we're just going to get started here. Uh, the first story at the top Russia orders troops to target Ukraine's Western provided long range weapons. So on Monday, Sergei Shogu, the uh, Russian defense minister, he ordered Russian troops to target Ukraine's long-range weapons and artillery. And this came uh, after Ukrainian officials said that they've been using U.S.-provided high-mobility artillery rocket systems known as the uh, the HIMARS. And according to an, uh, an advisor to Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, uh, they said Ukrainian forces have used these HIMARS to launch 30 strikes against Russian targets. They claim targets They claim that they destroyed two ammunition depots deep inside Russian-occupied areas of Ukraine, and uh, Russia denied their account of things and said that the strikes hit civilian infrastructure. Russia is accusing Ukraine of using the HIMARS to hit residential areas in the Donbass. The HIMARS that the U.S. provided Ukraine have a range of 50 miles, although they could be outfitted for munitions to reach longer ranges. Um, If you listened yesterday, I went over an article about how Ukrainian forces said that they're going to start using these HIMARS on Crimea, which Russia has controlled since 2014. The U.S. doesn't recognize it as Russian territory. Neither does Ukraine. When the U.S. first sent these HIMARS, they said they got assurances from Ukrainian officials that they won't be used on Russian territory. But Crimea is kind of a gray area. And when I asked the State Department if the ban applies to Crimea... If the ban on using the HIMARS in Russian territory applies to Crimea, they replied, Crimea is Ukraine. So that signals that under whatever deal they have with Ukraine about these weapons, they will allow them to be used on Crimea, which risks a pretty major escalation with Russia. Um, so we'll see how this shakes out. And Russia has, in response to, the, to Ukraine using these HIMARS, you know, they've, they've stepped up strikes across Ukraine in areas behind, uh, you know, the front lines of the war. Um, So we're seeing an expanded war because of the weapons that the U.S. has sent. And this next one, this is from Kyle Anzalone. He is our opinion editor at Antiwar.com. He also writes at the Libertarian Institute, which is run by Scott Horton, our editorial director. So there are friends over there at the Libertarian Institute. So um, Kyle covered that uh, Zelensky, he fired two of his top officials He fired uh, the head of the SBU, which is Ukraine's domestic spy agency. And he also fired a prosecutor general over claims that members of their agencies collaborated with Russia. Uh, So he's calling them traitors. And there's been a pretty serious crackdown in Ukraine on people accused of collaborating with Russia inside territories that Russia has left. And uh, outside, too, it's not not just there, but this is just another example of Zelensky using his wartime authorities to kind of uh, consolidate power, it's, it seems like. And uh, the aspect that Kyle covered was that the U.S. has been sharing intelligence with Ukraine uh, since the war started. And the U.S. was asked if these firings mean, mean any change to that arrangement. But they said no. Uh, this is a quote from State Department spokesperson Ned Price, he said, quote, we are in daily contact with our Ukrainian partners. We invest in we invest not in personalities. We invest in institutions. We do have an intelligence sharing relationship with our Ukrainian counterparts. We continue to proceed ahead with that. So there's been a few examples of U.S. officials bragging to the media about how Ukraine uh, used U.S. intelligence to target Russian generals, how they used U.S. intelligence to sink a Russian ship. We don't know how true those claims are, but the fact that they were made to the media is a major provocation towards Russia. I mean, you just have to put the shoe on the other foot. Imagine Russia bragging about helping to kill U.S. troops, um, how the reaction in the U.S. Um, so the the intelligence sharing, you know, it really shows how involved the U.S. is in the war. They're giving them real-time intelligence to help them target Russian Russian targets on the battlefield. So the next one here we're getting into uh, NATO and Turkey and Sweden and Finland trying to join the alliance. Turkish President Erdogan, he renewed his his threat to block Sweden and Finland from joining the alliance on Monday. So when they first applied, Turkey blocked Sweden and Finland from joining initially. Uh their main concerns, you know, they they accuse Sweden and Finland of supporting Kurdish militant groups. Most importantly, the PKK, which Turkey considers a terrorist organization, not just Turkey, but also the US and the EU. And they also wanted Sweden and Finland to lift sanctions that they placed on Turkey in response to one of Turkey's incursions into Syria in 2019. So, at the end of June, at the NATO summit in Madrid, Turkey signed a memorandum with Sweden and Finland. And Sweden and Finland agreed to. Given to some of Turkey's demands in exchange, Turkey would lift its objection. So now their NATO membership has gone to the legislatures in each NATO members in each each NATO members' legislator has to approve their membership. And Turkey is saying, you know, if they don't live up to that memorandum, we're still going to block their membership. Now the main concern for Turkey is over extradition. They want to extradite suspected members of the PKK. And they've renewed requests with Sweden and Finland. Now, if you read the, the agreement that they signed, they don't say it doesn't say explicitly that Sweden and Finland have to extradite whoever Turkey asks for. It just says that they have to reply to their extradition request. So we'll see um, how this shakes out. But uh, Erdogan said on Monday, "quote I want to reiterate once again that we will freeze the process if these countries do not take the necessary steps to fulfill our conditions." End quote. So Sweden is really the big one. It seems like it's more so there's more Kurdish groups in Sweden and the Swedish government came under a lot of pressure from a Swedish MP who is of Kurdish Iranian heritage. Um, The government needed her support to survive a no confidence vote in June, and she said that she made a deal with them not to give in to Turkey's demands. And since they signed this memorandum, she's, you know, ramped up the pressure on the Swedish government. So the domestic politics in Sweden could play a big factor in this. And Erdogan hinted that that's the case. He said, quote, we particularly note that Sweden does not have a good image on this issue. End quote. Um, Whatever exactly that means, but I think you get the gist of of what he's saying. Um, So the next one here, this is really about the sanctions, the US-led sanctions campaign on Russia and the blowback that Western economies have faced. Europe facing major economic crisis from sanctions campaign against Russia. So the U.S.-led sanctions campaign against Russia has done nothing to stop the war in Ukraine or hurt Vladimir Putin. But the toll continues to mount on Western economies, and there are increasing signs that Europe is facing a major economic crisis. So the euro has reached a 20-year low against the dollar. Inflation is at a record high, 8.6%, and economists are predicting a recession if the EU is cut off from Russian gas. So Russia has already stopped supplying some EU members uh, with natural gas because they refused to pay in rubles. Uh, Putin required payment in gas in rubles, payment for gas in rubles, um, because U.S. and EU sanctions targeted Russia's use of the dollar and euro. So that was a bit of retaliation, and uh, some countries didn't oblige, and they were cut off. So now the Nord Stream 1 natural gas pipeline that connects Russia and Germany is currently shut down for routine maintenance, but there are growing fears that the pipeline might not come back into service. The Russian gas company Gazprom delivered a letter, letter to European buyers dated July 14th that said they cannot guarantee gas supplies because of extraordinary circumstances. Now, Russia already reduced the amount of gas Nord Stream 1 carried by 1%. Uh, excuse me, Nord Stream 1 carried by 40% back in June because a turbine that was being serviced was stuck in Canada due to Western sanctions. So That's another example of sanctions having a blowback impact on the West. Um, This turbine was stuck in Canada. Canada eventually agreed to return the turbine, a move that was denounced by Ukraine. Now Germany, uh, the top economy in Europe, is preparing to ration gas because the winter is coming and they're not sure how the supply is going to be. If there's a complete halt in Russian gas supplies, um, the EU is warning that as much of its uh, 1.5%, it could reduce the EU's gross domestic product by as much as 1.5%. So that's pretty significant. And then meanwhile, Russia is making more profits from oil sales than before the war, and the ruble is the strongest performing currency of the year as Russia has worked to shield itself from Western sanctions. Russia did default on its foreign debt, but it's not a true default because they have the funds to pay it. It's just that their foreign currency, foreign currency reserves have been frozen by Western sanctions. And now the U.S. is mulling ways to correct its failed sanctions campaign, including by trying to implement a price cap on Russian oil. But the plan is doomed to fail. It would require Russia to um, cooperate with this price cap as well as China and India who are now the top purchasers of you know they've really stepped up their purchase of Russian oil since the war started. Um, and they're already buying it at a discount. they have little reason to cooperate. And analysts at JP Morgan Chase have warned that if Russia ret- if the, the West attempts this price cap, and Russia retaliates by reducing oil output, uh, global oil prices could soar to over $300 per barrel. That's the worst case scenario if Russia really you know, decides to cut its oil production by a lot. And it has shown that it's willing to kind of brunt um, an, an, an initial economic shock to uh, shield itself from Western sanctions, Western attempts to hurt the Russian economy. So this next one, the State Department approves over $1.4 billion in arms sales for Estonia and Norway. So this I wanted to highlight because since Russia invaded Ukraine and the Western response by shipping billions of dollars worth of weapons into Ukraine, building up NATO on what they call its eastern flank in Eastern Europe, uh, is a boon for U.S. arms makers. And this is another aspect of it, is that all these countries in the region are increasing their military spending, and we're going to see a lot more of these arm sales. So this deal is for air-to-air missiles and related equipment for Norway, worth 950 million, um, and the primary contractor of these. This missile deal is Raytheon, is a subsidiary subsidiary of Raytheon Technologies, which I always have to point out, uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin served as a Raytheon board member before taking his post at the Pentagon, and now Raytheon is really cashing in on the U.S. policy towards Ukraine. Imagine that. <laughs> um, and then the other deal is for the HIMARS systems that I spoke of before. The, they're a portable truck-mounted multiple rocket launch system that the US recently started sending Ukraine. And as we've seen, Ukraine is saying that they're using them on the battlefield now. Now Estonia shares a border with Russia. And the country's defense minister said on Sunday that the HIMARS purchase would make Moscow nervous. Um the Baltic nations of Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, they've been very hawkish towards Russia um since the war started. They really want more NATO troops in their country. They've all said they're going to increase their military spending. And a Russian, uh, excuse me, an Estonian defense ministry official said that the HIMARS would make it harder for Russia to attack Estonia. The official said, "Quote: It will allow us to affect the enemy in their own territory. This means their supply routes, command centers, and everything else would be within our range." End quote. The principal contractor for the HIMARS sale is Lockheed Martin. Lockheed Martin has done pretty good. They make the Javelin anti-tank missiles that the U.S. has been sending a ton of to Ukraine. They make them along with Raytheon. And Raytheon makes Stinger missiles, which the U.S. has also shipped thousands of. So they are making out pretty good. So the next one here, we're moving on to Iran. And this is the Israeli military chief says the Israeli defense forces, the IDFs, main focus is preparations to strike e- Iran. Um, this is the IDF chief of staff. He said, "Quote: preparing a military option against the Iranian nuclear program is a moral necessity and a national security imperative. End quote. Uh, last year, Kochavi, the, he's the IDF chief of staff, he said the Israeli military was accelerating its plans to strike Iran's nuclear program the Israeli Air Force recently simulated a large-scale attack on Ukraine during military exercises over the Mediterranean Sea. Kochavi said Iran's nuclear pro- program would still be a concern even if the nuclear deal, known as the JCPOA, was revived. He called the JCPOA a bad deal and said the agreement, quote, allows Iran to become a nuclear state within a short time after its end date, end quote. So this is a talking point we often see from Israel is that the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, expires. So it's a path to a nuclear armed Iran. But after the JCPOA expires, Iran would still be a signatory to the non-proliferation treaty. And they vowed over and over again that, that they have no plans to develop a bomb. So it was interesting, as I mentioned yesterday, an advisor to Iran's supreme leader said that while Iran hasn't decided to make a bomb, he said that they have the technical means um, to do so. And that's really, I think, the first time that Iranian official has said something like that, but they still maintain that they have no plans to build a bomb. Now, Israel, on the other hand, has a secret nuclear weapons program and and refuses to sign the NPT. So next one here, this is again from Kyle Anselin at the Libertarian Institute, and this one kind of cracks me up. The Department of Homeland Security's uh, disinformation board uh, that was very short-lived that they announced And then um, they canceled after a lot of uh, people on the Internet, uh, you know, complained about it and compared it to, um, you know, the Ministry of Truth in 1984. So now a Department of Homeland Security advisor issued a one sentence statement saying the agency has no need to revive its disinformation governance board. The board was headed by Nina Jankowicz, but collapsed shortly after it was rolled out. The White House announced the disinformation board in April. The board was already in operation two months before Homeland Security Chief Alejandro Mayorkas informed Congress. Mayorkas said the new DHS board would combat disinformation spread by, quote, foreign states such as Russia, China, and Iran, end quote. Um, Jankowitz was made the head of the board. She's a self-labeled expert on disinformation, um, and she previously promoted several infamous stories from the Russia Gate conspiracy conspiracy that were revealed as din- disinformation generated by the Hillary Clinton campaign. Um, Kyle's got all good links in here to back up uh everything he's saying. And Jankowitz also targeted the Hunter Biden laptop story in 2020, boosted the evidence, the baseless claims that the younger Biden's laptop was disinformation from Russia. Um, so but it looks like this disinformation board is totally dead in the water, which is good because it it like, it like did sound very Orwellian. Um, this next one here is from Jason Ditz. The UN is pushing for a six-month ceasefire extension in Yemen. So this is good news because the ceasefire has held relatively well. There's been some pretty heavy fighting on the ground, it seems like, but there's been no Saudi airstrikes in Yemen since the end of March. And that's significant. Now, from what I understand, the Houthis are saying that the Saudis are not living up to their end of the ceasefire exactly. Um, they promised to ease the blockade on Yemen. They did let some flights out of the Sana'a airport for the first time in years, which was a big deal, but uh, apparently it's not regular flights. Um, there's still some issues with Hodeida, the Red Sea port uh, in Yemen that the Saudis have had under blockade for years. They've been letting more ships in from what I understand, but maybe not enough. Uh, but hopefully this sticks, this ceasefire stays intact. Again, I mentioned yesterday, this is a really good time to put the pressure to end the war in Yemen. And there's a war powers resolution in the House and the Senate now. So if people want to bug, people should bug their representatives and their senator to pass that resolution and put the pressure on Biden to really finally end the war in Yemen. You can call one eight three three stop war and there's a prompt Um on their website, 1833stopwar.com, and it tells you what to say. And they connect you to your representative, to your senator, and tell them to support that resolution. It's one of the most important things going on right now. Scott Horton has really been pushing this. I should be kind of pushing it more, um, but I just wanted to mention that. So the next one here just a very important story Mexican president renews offer to grant asylum to Julian Assange in a letter to Biden. So Mexico's president, Lopez Obrador. Uh, He said that he delivered a letter to President Biden last week where he pleaded for the U.S. not to prosecute Julian Assange and renewed an offer to grant asylum to the WikiLeaks founder. So Lopez Aprador, he met with Biden last week and he said in the letter, um, he explained that Assange, quote, did not cause anyone's death, did not violate any human rights and that he exercised his freedom and that arresting him would mean a permanent affront to freedom of expression. The Mexican leader said he previously offered asylum to Assange in a letter to President Trump at the end of his term and again at the beginning of the Biden administration. Last month, Lopez Obrador called Assange the best journalist of our time, which I agree with 100%. Uh, So Assange faces up to 175 years in prison for exposing U.S. war crimes by publishing documents that he received from whistleblower and former Army soldier Chelsea Manning. Uh, Lopez Obrador said earlier this month that if Assange is sentenced to life in prison, there should be a campaign to dismantle the Statue of Liberty. He said, quote, if they bring him to the U.S. and sentence to the ultimate penalty to death in prison, then we will have to initiate a campaign for dismantling the Statue of Liberty presented by the French because it will no longer be a symbol of liberty, he said. While the Mexican president is outspoken in his support for Assange, who is an Australian citizen, Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is not. Albanese has rejected calls for him to demand that Washington drop its extradition request. So Assange is still being held in London's Belmarsh prison. Uh, British Home Secretary Preeti Patel has approved the extradition of Assange to the U.S. and Assange's legal team has lodged an appeal on July 1st. Uh, But things, you know, really aren't aren't looking good. Hopefully the appeal, you know that I think they're going to mention the fact that there is a report from Yahoo news that repeat that revealed the Trump administration's CIA plotted to kidnap Julian Assange and even discussed killing him, uh, over his release of vault seven, which exposed the CIA's hacking tools uh, that that one really, um, angered the CIA and Mike Pompeo, who was the head of the CIA at the time. Um, And he's indicted on 17 counts of espionage and one count of conspiracy to commit a computer crime for his role in obtaining and publishing the leaks provided by Manning. But Assange used standard journalistic practices to obtain the information, something many human rights groups, journalist organizations, and U.N. officials have pointed out. Um, The prosecution, if Julian Assange is prosecuted for doing journalism, which is what he's being indicted for, it would be the biggest threat to uh, press freedom in the First Amendment in this in this country, you know, um, of our lifetime, I I believe. Um, so it's such an important issue. It's our picture story for the night. Um, but there's more here. You know, we have a ton of content, like I mentioned. So if people want to go to antiwar.com and read more, you should go ahead. That's all the news that I'm going to go over for the day. And I really appreciate everybody tuning in. And I hope. Um, if you want to send feedback, anti-war news with Dave at gmail.com, or you could follow me on Twitter and message me there at the Camp Dave. I'm pretty easy to find. And I want to remind you again, it's still our fundraiser at our fundraiser still going on at anti-war.com. And we could really use some help. We need to make a final push. We're pretty close to our goal of 80,000 for our fundraiser. We're totally funded by our readers and We need uh, support to keep going to continue this sort of content and this sort of coverage of the American empire that is pretty hard to find. So if you appreciate this, uh, please uh, give us a donation. And with that, uh, I'm out of here, but I will see everybody tomorrow and I will have more news. Thank you.